You're listening to Recover, a podcast exploring what it means to rediscover something we lost inside ourselves. Whether through addiction, grief, or trauma, we're all connected by the feelings of sometimes losing our way. Let's unlearn what got us here and find ourselves again together. And now your host, founder and facilitator at Invitation Wellness, Sierra Frost. You're listening to Recover. I'm Sierra Frost, and today I'm here with Kelly Shaw-Wilman. Thanks for being here today, Kelly. Uh, It's my pleasure, girl. (laughs) When you hear the word recovery or the concept of it, how do you relate that to your life, to your experience? Relating that to my life and to my experience is honestly fairly new. Um, I was staying with my dad for about six months recently back in Iowa, which is where I was born and raised. I stayed with him for six months, and during that time, the word recovery came up a lot. Um, And just to, like, thread back through, that was approximately nine to ten months ago in case it helped people to have, like, a time, context of time. Um, and he, as a 15 going on 16 year recovered alcoholic, used that word on the regular. Um, during that time I stayed with him, I actually attended his anniversary and presented him with this coin, which was cool and special and subtly overwhelming at the same time. Uh, <laughs> but I did that. So it was just kind of like this whole six month period where through the lens of my dad's experience, Um, I heard the word and then I started to kind of ask questions as well, just like gentle questions, a little ping pong here and there. And then just kind of like, I would leave his responses and marinate on them for a few days. My main question to him was, you know, you talk about recovery, like let's talk about verbiage, I guess, like recover, recovering, recovered, like, is there a present tense to this process or like a past tense? And I was curious about that, like, as a poet, as someone who likes to sort of feel words and feel the spaces that words occupy, if you will. So that's kind of like it. Like, I started talking with him about it. And then, quite honestly, I had, like, this another tier of of realizing what recovery was for me and feeling about it when you reached out to me several weeks ago about being on this podcast. Because you said, hey, want to be on my podcast, um, talk about recovery and art, you know, basically art therapy. And I was like, huh. So this word is like coming through again. I like personally have kept such distance from that word, like never proclaimed it as part of my own. But recently, I kind of speak it out loud and I kind of feel into it and really do realize for myself that I am indeed in recovery with complex post-traumatic stress disorder and there's been another recent transition for me right so there was the Iowa chunk with my dad and then I departed Iowa and I'm now in Thailand so that transition represents for me also this new phase with recovery again where I'm exploring what this word this concept this feeling means what I'm working through with my own issues around anxiety, depression, and all of that. So I hope that makes some kind of a sense. The main point is that um, 
it's kind of a new word in my realm that makes a tremendous kind of sense to me insofar as giving myself little markers or even a vocabulary that kind of breathes reality into all these years of my experience. I really like the example that you're using with your dad. Um, For those of you listening who maybe don't know, so when you are part of um, a 12-step group, they give, they have birthdays, they have anniversaries, and that's when you get your sobriety token and you get a different one for each year. And then once you have a lot of years, you get like a special one for every five years and et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of times I think when we think of the word recovery, we immediately go to addiction or we go to 12 step groups. Like that's where our brains go. And then, and then we're pulled back, like you're describing Kelly into this space of like, but what is this word and what does it mean? And a lot of the conversations on this podcast and the intention is to think of the word recovery as to discover or rediscover a part of us that maybe we lost along the way. Maybe it just got put on hold for a different part of us that, that needed more time and more space and just figuring out um, where that is and what that means for us. So your process of being an individual and really considering recovery and what it is and what it looks like in the realms of CPTSD, in the realms of anxiety, in the realms of using your art, um, in all of these ways that we express is, is exactly what I'm hoping that people who are listening will continue a dialogue with. And you, you mentioned poetry um, I love the way that you described feeling the spaces that words occupy. Can you tell us more about, so I met you, I met you in Costa Rica and you did this amazing, like, it was almost like an impromptu art, <laughs> um, performance and you had you had like a citrus fruit and some glitter and that was it and and the whole everyone on this like jungle like we're in the middle of the jungle right on this platform that we've been we've spent like a whole week together in and and it's like everyone there is completely captivated by you and and all you have is a citrus fruit and some glitter (laughs) And and that's it So it was like the most beautiful, like no one could take their eyes off of you. Can you tell us more about um, the kind of art you do, how the process is related to your, your experience of recovery? (laughs) Thanks for your words. That makes me giggle and feel a little shy. Um, I just freaking do what I do. And Right now, I'm going through this period of, like, remarkable catch-up with myself. And that, I hope, will make some sense. Because I think about my now 15-year body of underground, weird, witchy, wonderful alien artists. I've been making this work for 15 years, this performance art. And there are things about this work, about my methods, about my raw offerings that are just now starting to make sense to me. So when I say that I'm catching up with myself, it's like, I am. And there are lots of reasons why, right? Like I, for about a year and a half, I've been taking medication. I'm living in my body. That's a whole nother conversation that maybe we'll get to. 
So, golly, what I did in the jungle was was use, reuse iconography, reuse objects that are sacred to me personally. So citrus fruits grew locally on the property that I was living on at the time. And glitter is this thing, this, this wondrous, sparkly plastic stuff that I just love. I just love, no matter how shitty or how dark my life was or has been, I always, like, freaking put a little bit of glitter on my face, rub that shit on my titties like us, <laughs> you know? So that's just kind of, like, the sparkle factor. I've always been willing to, like, it symbolizes, you know, just bringing, bringing that magic forth, that that magic cannot be squashed down no matter what's happening. Um, and I think, honestly, it can also be read just very simply, like the aesthetic of glitter just makes me giggle, my inner child comes out, blah, blah, blah. So we all were sitting in close proximity for that performance. So when I start to slice the oranges open, you smell it. It's pleasant. You're in the jungle. You think and feel what you think and feel. And then what I throw my head back and because my body is covered in the juice of the orange that I squeezed on me, the glitter catches and it catches in these places where the juice has been. And in that instance, when I look back at the photos of that performance, it was my heart. It was purely my heart, like a sphere over my heart. And I think that's special too. Again, just like going back and peeping the archives, the now archives of this performance, that's what I see. So in ways, the art has led me. I, for so long, was in so much emotional pain. I was this human being walking around with such large gaping wounds, and it doesn't feel weird for me to admit it. Like, again, on, on this concept of catching up, like, that's what I'm realizing now for a lot of different reasons. A, medication, B, age, growing up, all of that. Um, so, yeah, golly gee, it's just like this, this, this fascinating thing just about like the rawness of my being or the rawness of the processes. Like I was always just kind of this vessel and I was willing to do what the art was asking of me. Right. And for me, it's always been this divine unfiltered connect to spirit, to all the facets of my human soul, but also to spirit. And then what I'm exploring also right now is like how all of that of course is, is one. I'm not separate from any of it, but sometimes spirit leads through my body, through my art. And sometimes the 11 fractured pieces of my multifaceted soul lead and present itself as what? Like juice and glitter and whatever else upon the body. It's such a vulnerable space. Yeah. To allow, as you're describing your soul, to really lead you in a performance that is that is then in turn leading the audience to whatever space and it's going to be individual for each person is such a vulnerable thing to do and it's such a gift i think to give to people and and one thing that is different about your art um and and about other people's art but i think i think sometimes um as as listeners are imagining art they might be going, but art is something that a lot of times like we can take in in the form of like take it home and put it on our walls and digest it that way or put it on our speakers and listen and digest it that way or or even eat it and literally digest it on our on our taste buds and in our body sure. that way. Sure. And, and what you offer is really an experience. Is that fair 
to say like it's it's digested as a that moment on that platform I can remember it and I can't really and I can look at pictures and I can remember it that way but I can't give that experience to anyone who wasn't already there right Mm, absolutely is there a moment or was there a moment in your life that you kind of started this this type of art or do you remember the first time that you thought of art as impactful for you Hmm. art creative expression has definitely always been a part of my life um goddess bless my mama because she always had us kids at a young age in dance classes and things like that you know with like the sequin leotards and the silly tap shoes with ribbons so like I have those memories and that encouragement from my mom um and then it always too just like the singing and the chorus and the for me opera training which I'm working to reshare with the world as my voice grows stronger so I'm saying that just because always, always some kind of creative expression was a part of my life. But for sure, there is a distinction. In 2005, I was like, yo, I'm at this like prestigious liberal arts school. How am I going to complete this program? Like I didn't fit there for a motherfucking second, you know, and I was determined because at the time I was still in this very like high achieving mindset where like you finish what you start, you know, you've got a mad grant to go to this school, like get it done. So I took advantage shortly before 2005, I took advantage of the school's offering to self-design my own major. And I did so in performance art. Not that I even really knew what performance art was, but I think I had this sort of like wide concept based on an art history class where I just geeked out on some of these performance artists who were doing their thing in Europe in the 60s and 70s. Um, So I just kind of like sunk into that. I wrote the proposal. I got three different professors on my team across the departments of English, you know, with my poetry interests um, and in the art department with interests in sculpture and performance art and, and all of that. And someone in theater I was studying experimental theater and lo and behold they accepted my proposal and so I went in really hard from 2005 until now doing the performance art so it started on my college campus like painting snow with orange colored water and and just following the vision and documenting it um really really loyally documenting the work um I was given that that golden nugget from my sculpture professor rob nielsen just one of those things i've never forgotten and i'm like hella loyal to i hope i answered your question (laughs) talk to me more about documenting the art what does that do for you or for the art why is that an important aspect of it well like you said right i think people think about art as like and this is super legit and so many of my friends make this incredible art illustrations paintings huge installations sculptures whatever whether they're in public or in a gallery or a warehouse or whatnot and we do we we think about that kind of art because my body is the medium because my presence is the medium as a performance artist you have to create the document, you know, like proof that the performance happened, um, video of the performance, 
snippets of the, of the performance as a combination of some kind of sound you lay on top of the video. And I think for me, like the loyalty aspect to doing that is just, it, it's bred into me. Like I'm a Midwest Iowa girl. I'm just very loyal. My people are very loyal. And that's just like, I can't sweep it out of myself. It's just in me. So that love and loyalty, I, I it just very naturally like stuck onto Rob's words document 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 like I can see him throwing up his arm like document 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 so I document <laughs> and then you know my little DIY ghetto blog is like the archival collecting space you know like whatever it's old school in Philly but if you spend some time with it my archives are rich like there's so much work in there so many photographs so many videos yeah, and I'm getting the sense almost, like you said, it's like you you birth something into the world and and then you create the space for other people to really enjoy it. Whether it's still like physically living or not, you're creating this this story, which is really important because humans are storytellers. We we want to hear stories, we want to tell stories. That's how we connect. It's how we've always connected historically. And I think that's really important. When was the time that you started, and it might have been recently, when you started to really connect your your process of recovery with your art? And I know you said that your art kind of led you first. Can you talk more about that, what that was like? So in speaking again to like this concept of catching up with myself, it's almost like my whole practice is taking some space to breathe and to catch up because recovery is something I'm starting to speak about a lot more and write about in my, in my book. I know that you're writing a book too, um, speaking of storytellers and, and all of that. It's really important for me to to be writing this book too. And yeah, there's just like no way around the recovery angle. So I feel like the documents of my work, the live performance, let's say, and then the pictures and the video that that comes after, or in some instances too, I'm creating just, it's just me and one photographer, like a very intimate kind of setting. And then afterwards I'll present like an accumulation of our photographs together and interconnect like my writing, which is becoming more of like an artist statement presented around a bunch of images. And that's new for me. That's like part of the catching up too, where like I want for my writing, my storytelling, my discussion about recovery, about embodiment, about what embodiment really is, because your girl is gonna be 40 before you know it. And I'm just now like speaking about embodiment, living it pardon like I would rather say living it like I'm living in my body and that to me is just like oh oh that that's what this is like that's what everyone was talking about with the hashtag embodiment for so many years I thought I was but I wasn't you know so anyway that's again probably a bit of a different conversation or one that we'll get to in in this podcast potentially at a different moment but um yeah, there's that. The recovery discussion is new enough that I'm kind of letting everything breathe so that I understand how to connect my words to the images 
in a way that just feels more real or more truthful or, or different. There's something shifting for me. Um, and beyond that, I'm not quite sure how to explain it with words. Was there a moment when you first experienced true embodiment? There's this concept, right, that I think you're describing really well, where we, we use words and we talk about things and, and we even think that we know what we're talking about. And then, yes. and then these moments happen that we're like, oh, I actually had no idea what that was like until now. And it's yeah. like, it's like learning and knowing are different, right? Learning is like this intellectual, like conceptual, like planning stage almost. And then the knowing is like, it lives in our bones. It live like we are feeling it in that moment. Was there yeah. a moment that you, that you feel called to share that you were like, oh, that's embodiment. That's being in my body because that's something that's really relatable to a lot of people within the realm of recovery, whether it's a natural disaster or a, a car accident or physical or sexual abuse, um, all these things like we don't feel safe in our bodies and we dissociate. And then, mm -hmm. and then we end up, you know, a lot of times in our twenties and our thirties and our forties and our fifties, sixties. And we're like, Oh, I just learned what it was like to feel hungry again. Yes! Yeah! <laughs> I just hit the bed. Like, with my hand, I slapped the bed. I've been having... I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm also not sorry, because we talked at the forefront about not apologizing, but I'm going to jump all over you right now, because I keep having this conversation inside of my mind with myself, where I'm, like, step-by-stepping things with myself. I'm like, Kelly, you are hungry. Do not keep working. Open the door. Go outside, walk down the street in Bangkok, have some food. I hope you giggle because I also just made up this little ditty where I'm like, if you're hungry, sit down and eat. If you're thirsty, have a little drink. If you need some love, then call on a kitty cat or holla at your girlfriends. Like, like literally just like, whatever. Like, I'm like, gosh, is this like what a little kid raised in a healthy environment already knows? Whatever. Like, I'm just having all of these thoughts. Alas, that was a bit of a sidetrack. And to answer your question more directly, um, I didn't have like a singular distinct moment. I had these little sprinklings of moments, plural, where when I was at my dad's recently for the six month period, um, I just would have these little like, if I were to describe it to you as like a feeling, just kind of like the top of my head was tickling, right? Like maybe someone's tickling the top of my forehead. And then I would kind of have like a breathe in or like a moment or like, oh, all right, I'm in my body. Like I'm in my body, you know, and just kind of like acknowledging that I was in my body. And so then I had like an accumulation of those knowings, of those little tickle at the top of my head, acknowledging what I felt, acknowledging that I was really, like, capital letter, spell the whole thing out, R-E-A-L-L-Y, really double exclamation points, like, in my body. Several dozens, dozens of little times, dozens of little sparkly moments where I was just realizing that throughout this recent six-month period. And I am so grateful for you to, like, for making that reference to, like, the simple things, like, hey, you're hungry. Hey, don't hold your pee. Like, go sit down on the patty. These things that we as people who have held so much anxiety and fear and, and frozenness, like, we, we don't know how to be comfortable or how to, like, 
do the simple things to take care of myself, right? And it sounds maybe so silly, which I am not saying apologetically, honestly, truly, but I get overwhelmed. Again, as I said, like coming into my 37th year of life, I feel overwhelmed sometimes by like all of these little discoveries. And here I am, this highly sensitive little lady out in Bangkok, Thailand, having these awakenings with very little, I have an awesome support squad, so not like that, but like, it's just me and me. It's just me and me. It's me and my little bungalow. It's me floating in the water. It's me typing out stuff for my book. It's me conceptualizing, just having these little moments of, (laughs) you know, like, this is what it feels like to feed yourself when you're hungry. This is what it's like to stay hella hydrated. You know, this is what it's like to like, not, sometimes I'm walking to like the 7-Eleven to restock on something, you know, and I realize that I'm breathing normally. I'm like, oh, or I realize when I'm not breathing normally, I'm like, okay, now we're just going to like really methodically breathe in a little bit more because you're holding on your breath. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think one of the reasons why it feels kind of basic or, or you use the word silly is that if we all had perfect childhoods, these are the uh-huh. kind of things that we would be learning. We would be learning what it's like to feel hungry and how to express that. We'd be learning what it's like to feel like we have to go to the bathroom and then we would go do that. We would learn what it's like to breathe fully and, and how to be healthy in that way. And we would learn how to take care of ourselves or how to ask And we would feel worthy of taking care of ourselves. And the reality is that for a lot of people, I would even assert most people, (laughs) that's not what happens in our childhoods. And, And it really is an act. And it feels radical because never in our lives have we had the situation where we could put ourselves first. So it feels radical to be like, oh, I can just get up and eat when I need to. I can just get up and use the bathroom when I need to. And like, oh, this is what hunger actually feels like. Previously, I thought it felt like this completely different thing. So what you're sharing is very relatable. I know a lot of people listening are having these aha moments of like, yeah, I remember the time I learned what hunger was. And I was much older than people think. Right. Yeah, bless your heart for rounding that out and and validating that for so many of us. Yeah. Definitely. Was there ever a moment, or maybe several, that you, you realized that something was missing? You realized that you wanted to start a change Um, of recovery, even if recovery wasn't the word that you identified with, was there ever a moment where a lot of people use the word purpose that I've worked with? They'd they'd be like, I mean, I was happy, but it was like that something was missing and it was a feeling, but I couldn't put a word to it. And a lot of times they describe it as living without purpose. I think for me, because I was born into this like really passionate soul because I've always been making I've always been making work I've always been making art and there 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 wasn't for me necessarily like any kind of an aha moment 
for me, it's been just really kind of a slow, raw, unfolding process because for me, at the age of 19, in the late fall when I left for college, I had a distinct moment of being alone in the hallway of my dorm near a payphone on the wall because it was back in those days. And I just felt this gust of overwhelm, like this is distinct. And I'm, I'm writing about this experience in my book. And I honestly don't think I've ever vocalized it outside of my own self. But it was like a gust of a tornado or a storm came upon the front of my body. And I fell back and fell like underneath this payphone that's on the wall, kind of in the corner. And what I heard, what I, what I heard and thought was, whoa. The way you grew up was not right. The way you grew up, that, that wasn't right. It was also the first time in my life I was away from my home and my parents and completely on my own. And I was not alone in having that experience because I can think back to like getting ready for Halloween with two of my college besties who to this day remain two of my favorite people on the planet. And I remember just <laughs> putting makeup on a gentleman who was presenting himself as a woman for Halloween with my girl, Bestie. And he just out of nowhere, out of seemingly nowhere, started to weep and cry and like kind of lost his breath and was talking about his own traumatic childhood. It was like we all were just having, not all of us, but some of us were willing to speak or needed to speak about what we were experiencing. And again, you know, we're 18, 19-year-old kids away from home, and home wasn't necessarily a fabulous place. In the instance I'm just describing, he and I had both grown up with an alcoholic parent, and there's so much that you just don't understand about that until years or decades later, right? So that was a distinct moment at that time of 2001, right, of like realizing that something hadn't been right for me and for my siblings growing up. But because, too, my whole process with art and with recovery has been so process-oriented until today, which is like 15-plus years later, there have been so many moments touching in with different therapists, at least a dozen, different doctors with all kinds of different opinions, right? Just so much information coming in about what's going on with me. Um, I guess, again, to like back up at age 19, I was diagnosed with PTSD, and then before I left Costa Rica recently, I was it was clarified by a trauma specialist that I indeed had complex PTSD, right? Because now I'm 15 plus years into this experience of like just boom, 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 trauma all the time functioning. It's this functioning through the lens of like, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe for any number of reasons. So yes to that distinct experience at age 19, but again, I've just been collecting so much information over this whole period of time, right? So information from doctors, information through my artwork, information through messages I receive in my own prayerfulness, you know, things that are shared with me from medicine women who frankly know a hell of a lot more, in, in my opinion, than old white medical doctors, you know? I've been independently researching and, 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 it has the most ongoing thing rather than a boom. And I guess, too, at the forefront of my explanation, I made the point about passion, and I made the point about my artistry because it's just this thing that, that moves through me. Like, I don't have a choice about it, and I'm totally fine with that. Um, 
but I don't, I don't know that I ever really had like the poo moment. There was always just this ongoing process of independently researching the, the trauma experience, but also making the art as an act of like I'm surviving, you know. What you're describing is is almost like the defining factors of of complex PTSD, I think, because there's this moment of we all grow up um, in an environment, right? And for adolescents, that's all we know, right? It's the first 16, 18-ish years of our lives. And, and especially in high school, I talk about this a lot with, with families and with people working with youth, there, there's no sense of time in, in the way of that it continues after high school. It's like, this is what we know. This is what we've always known. There's no reason that a teenager would be able to imagine life after that. Because it's such a, whether you are homeschooled, whether you're going to public school, whatever it is, you're in this environment and it's the only thing you've ever known. And it's not until that moment where you step out of it that I think you're describing this moment in the hallway that you're like, huh, now, now that I'm a step away from this, I can look back at it. You're not like in the thick of it. Right. And just like a veteran who would come home from war, that person would step back like when you're in the middle of it, you're not thinking, you're not observing, you're not seeing things from the same perspective. And then the moment you you have to step out of it, you're like, whoa, that was actually really affecting me more than I knew. I maybe wasn't connected to my body in ways that I had no idea about. I was maybe protecting myself, protecting my family members in ways that I wasn't aware of at the time. All of these things start to come to the surface and, and it is a process. It's very, it's deeply personal. Yeah. And for those of you listening, um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder is, is kind of a newer, even actually PTSD didn't, didn't really exist as a label until 1987. Oh. So PTSD and complex PTSD are relatively new for us to really understand, I think. But the biggest difference between those two things is PTSD could happen after one incident. It could happen after one earthquake, after one car accident, after one um, one night of abuse or trauma. And complex PTSD, the kind of hallmark of that is that it happens over a longer period of time. So the behavior patterns, the thought patterns, the belief systems, the things that are consequences, good and bad consequences of those types of experiences are a little bit more ingrained. They are repetitive. Um, it really creates this, this space of cycles, right? So it's something that happens over a longer period of time. And so people respond to it in a different way and sometimes in a deeper, more ingrained way. Yep. Yep. That's, that's great. I really appreciate that you have, um, you're just a lovely educator. That's the simple way to say it. I appreciated hearing all of that. Now, tell me if you already said this, or maybe you already said it in kind of a different way, but 
what the trauma specialist, the angel human I worked with recently before I departed Costa Rica. So that would be like early January 2018, just again to provide some like timeline. She clarified too that complex PTSD and she helped me to realize for me that there indeed was a distinction. It wasn't just PTSD as was diagnosed at age 19, but because there was an accumulation for me of so many so many different experiences from my childhood to in my early college years surviving multiple rapes you know like just a lot of shit you know and um yeah it's just this pile up throughout basically the the entirety of my life thus far right so that too you know that that angle Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be the same situation over and over again. It can be, it can be a string of seemingly unrelated events as well. And for a lot of us, this, this is a bigger topic to get into, but for a lot of us who experience chronic trauma, especially as children, it becomes our comfort zone. And what happens when we leave is we tend to almost I hesitate to use this word, but almost attract trauma because it's what we know. And so it's actually scarier to have healthy relationships because that's a change. That's something that isn't familiar. And so no matter what, with if you're a human being with a human brain and a human body, when you're in a situation that's uncomfortable, we sense it as dangerous. So even if that situation is healthy, it's like we've never had a healthy situation. So now we're just like completely overwhelmed with stress because we've never experienced it. So we oftentimes will repeat the pattern or continue the pattern because we're seeking comfort, which I know seems completely opposite of, of what we think. We think, oh, well, of course, we just naturally seek healthy relationships, healthy environments. No, we seek what we know. So if what we've known is unhealthy, then that's what we continue to seek until we change those patterns and we do this type of work, right? Definitely, but yes, 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 yes. And there's this element too of like when and how and why and do you, does an individual in this lifetime come into whatever it is, like an awareness or a consciousness about this continued pileup of unhealthy relationship dynamics, for example, because that too is a, it's a whole thing. Like I can tell you for myself that I wasn't aware that things were so unhealthy in many of my past romantic relationships, for example. I had no idea. And now, again, as I approach like my 40th year of life, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm able to backtrack and to view all of these situations that indeed were so unhealthy. And I, I did, I had no idea. And I guess too, like this has been coming up a lot for me as like embarrassment. I don't feel shame. I'm not mad at myself. I'm in a really great place with like, I think, I think I'm lovely. I think I'm a lovely human, but I experience a lot of embarrassment and I'm, I'm navigating that right now without too much of like a sounding board, quite frankly. I feel embarrassed, for example, about how much of my, the decade of my twenties, I was just so bad at human relationships and I would, you know, like there was always some kind of dramatic parting of ways and it wasn't intended and it wasn't necessarily initiated by me, but just these like, and I had so many hurt feelings about it. I was so confused about why it was happening or like that kind of a thing. 
And it happens, it is happening much less in my 30s, much less, you know, and I'm determined that my inner circle is so tremendous, so beautiful. Like, I feel like I know who has my back. So at this point in time, too, it's like there there isn't even space for that. Yeah, it's almost like if all of our experiences were held in in like a thread of yarn and then it, it was all like balled up. And, and now we're looking at this ball of yarn while it also continues on and, and trying to like take apart and really look at things. And, and to be completely fair in a lighter way, most people are not good at relationships. They're not good at it, especially in our country. Like we do not teach social emotional intelligence. We do not teach about what healthy love looks like we just like we see what we see in our families and on media and in movies and it's like none of that is really healthy it's it it shows us the part where you fall in love and then and then the screenshot ends like the movie ends and we don't talk about like you you're still in love and you still have arguments right you're still in love and you still have to learn how to navigate being independent individuals Right. And not codependent individuals, right? Yep. Like so, Damn. so like we're we're really good at teaching codependence, and we're really not oh. doing an effective job in our country of that. So just like just to be fair, to hit on that that embarrassment factor is like we are not good. Like it is rare, I think, <laughs> that humans, that American humans especially, are good at relationships, as and especially in their twenties. Right. But that does also bring me to a point that we were speaking about earlier of this idea of trauma informed care. And I'm using that like really loosely. So there's there's so many different fields of work, different circles that we are in um, creatively in like the realm of yoga, in the realm of spirituality, of sisterhood, of like, I'm just throwing out words that we, we use a lot to create these communities. And tell me more about your ideas, your experience with this, with this idea of trauma informed care within these communities and what that experience has been like for you. For me, this is a humongous conversation and in ways that the conversation I'm just starting and in ways because how I approach this conversation feels like it needs to be remarkably purposeful, uh, remarkably considerate. I, I don't have all the words for it. And to some degree, and I think this comes up a lot in conversation too with, with social justice, there's a lot of space for clumsiness. And that has to be, I think, okay with everyone. I in my own way, have been on a quest that is bigger than anything America ever showed me, right? So I could easily say spiritual quest, but the word spiritual just doesn't do enough for me because what kind of started to happen for me, like when I started yoga early on in college, age 20 or so, and kind of then started finding my way into like Reiki communities and crystals and All of that's beautiful. All of that is still very much a part of my practice. (laughs) 
leave that there and, and jump a little bit. More recently, I've noticed like with online marketing, hashtag, like you said, about spirituality, hashtag spirituality, hashtag yoga every damn day, hashtag sisterhood. These words for me need to be much more than a hashtag, but, but enacted, lived. As someone like me who has gone through crisis in public as part of a community, I have felt like some of my girlfriends who I was cool with in like a spiritual environment, like a, a ceremony or a yoga class, had no idea what to do with me when I couldn't leave my house for two weeks. And I'm not saying that from a place of blame. I'm not saying that from a space of not loving them. I'm not saying that from a space of I intend to badmouth their projects. Not at all. But what was missing was this ability on their end to empathize or to understand what I specifically was, was going through. So the insomnia, the, the being frozen, the only people during that time recently who knew what to do with me were trauma professionals or the sweet, wonderful Christian woman from the coffee store, which, you know, it's like, and I called them my angels because what I needed at that time was someone to come knock on my door to bring me food, to walk me to the ATM so I could pull cash to pay my rent. And in the meantime, one of my best girlfriends from that community said, I don't think you're taking enough responsibility. And it's like, they just had no idea. And it was not intended to hurt me, but I haven't been able to speak to this person since. And there may come a time and a space when we can talk. But if you don't know, if you're some sweet pea who is financially stable, who doesn't struggle with anxiety, and who's using these kinds of hashtags, please, and I say this with my hand over my heart, don't call me your sister if you can't hug me when I'm broken. I, I have a best friend from my childhood. This is my oldest, one of my oldest friendships. It's almost 30 years old. And, you know, if people would like to not listen to this, I just will let you know that she experienced trauma, uh, murder. So I will talk just very briefly about that. If that for you is going to be a trigger, you know, just turn off the sound for a minute, you know. But she found her fiancé murdered. And so I recently, too, was holding space for someone who had that level of trauma, who had left her body because she found someone she loved murdered. And I wasn't prepared, like, in this court situation of holding space for her while she testified. Uh, I wasn't prepared to see the images of him on the ground. I didn't know the details of his murder, which were all on display in these photographs, you know? And I thought to myself, too, after having this wound with, with the last community I left in Costa Rica around just not being supported in, in my crisis, where my, my life had literally been threatened by an F, and, like, I was scared that I was going to die, and I felt like very few people could help me through that. When I was able to see, to physically experience what my friend had been going through for all of these years, like, in advance of the trial... I don't even know how to explain it when, when people are broken like that. And it, it can be so scary for, for, and this again helps me to have some understanding of where maybe people were coming from in my instance. 
people don't always know how to navigate talk about death. People don't know how to navigate these huge things like this beautiful woman I've known for 30 years found her her almost husband then. They had just bought a house together, you know, and in this very violent way. So I feel too like it's beautiful to be offering up your projects and your training. And you've called me sister, but I also know that I've scared you. I also know that you've been really scared of me when I've been hurt. So I, I feel like it can be dangerous, too, for a lack of trauma-informed education. It's, it's, it scares me, because I can tell you that until I chose to just focus on what works for me, which is like an African-rooted spirituality, knowing very clearly who my inner circle is, I've had to step away from all of that because it was doing me more harm than help, you know? And that all, honestly, somehow is said very, very, very broadly because there are a lot of details, a lot of details, you know? And I'm not going to name call because, like I said, I still very much love and respect and see everyone's project, you know? But I, like you, a lot of these girls are, you know... Blonde girls, you think that I, I might be more like you, whatever. I, they didn't know how to hold space for me, and that really hurts. It really hurts. Yeah, what you're describing is is a really, really important concept that I especially am I'm very passionate about. Going into spaces and teaching them how to actually be <laughs> trauma-informed. And I think, I think that's a, like trauma informed care is a buzzword that we hear, but the fact of the matter is that in our country, trauma is an elective when you go to school for a psychology degree. We, I mean, and that, that's very telling, right? Trauma is an elective. So even in those spaces, um, I have had experience, my clients have had experiences, where they were invalidated, they were harmed. And so it's a safety issue. And it's not, it's not like you said, everyone's doing the best they can with the resources that they have. So it's really important that if we are in relationship where we're holding space, whether that's teaching a yoga class or having breath work or um, doing energy work with people if we want to be really close with someone that we know has experienced a lot of trauma, we must do the work of seeking out understanding better. We must do the work of going deep within ourselves so that we can go deep within other people. And the difference in like that you mentioned, um, African tribes, this is true for Australian tribes as well, they had more of a sense of circle, like they would sit in circle, and they would really witness people, they would witness their stories, they would witness the details, or they would know the details, they would sit with them in a way that was so much more raw. And I'm not saying necessarily that 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 it's always the time for everyone to do that, like, Part of the safety is that we go in to a situation understanding what we're holding space for. So like you said, you you weren't prepared to see these photos of this murder. It's important that we prepare ourselves and that we feel prepared and able to go into those spaces. And sometimes we might be and sometimes we, may, we might not be. 
But that's really the work is like, do I have asking ourselves, do I have the capacity to support this person where they are? And a lot of times you mentioned there's this practical piece that we miss because like what I'm not saying, I'm not saying we have to be a counselor. It's not our job to take care of someone else's emotions, but we can validate them. We can bring them food. We can help them do their laundry. We can give them rides. We can go grocery shopping for them. Like these are all things we would do for someone if they had cancer or some sort of surgery and they were in the hospital. So thinking of that in a practical way is, is really important. And really understanding trauma-informed care and holding that space is really, really important and, and a huge safety issue for everyone involved. Yeah. And I want to ask you, you've spent a lot of time traveling in, in other countries. And I know that that's also a little bit related to your journey within recovery, within unfolding all of these ideas <laughs> and thoughts and expressions. So tell us more about that part of it sure I mean I remember in college speaking to one of my advisors about really wanting to travel about really wanting to go to like one of the programs abroad and she gosh I love her (laughs) shout out Marty Hemwall um she was like no you are not going anywhere but this campus because you know I'll just be straight with you like I was crying all the time I couldn't stop I couldn't do deadlines like I was just like a blubbering fool and I don't say that about my I can kind of giggle about it now right because like we're Kelly as a hot mess but still going to school and still working a job and like whatever but (laughs) what was the question (laughs) about travel traveling (laughs) traveling So, you know, I I couldn't because people I loved were highly encouraging that, you know, girls who's crying all the time doesn't get on an airplane and go live someplace foreign, right? And it makes wonderful sense to me now. Bless that advice and I'm glad I listened. But I started to feel after, after, after undergrad, after moving to New York City, you know, that New York City, after about a year and a half, had started to feel like too much. So I touched down, like, in the woods of Maine, made some art, and eventually, somehow along the way, like, ended up living abroad the majority of the time. You know, Costa Rica, Central America for seven years, approximately, and now I'm really feeling Southeast Asia. What I realize now about these choices is, again, like, whatever it took to like sell my belongings, pack up two two suitcases and like hop on a plane and figure out how to live in Costa Rica. Like I just, I just did that. Again, it was kind of like this raw force leading me because what I needed for my recovery at that time was four hours of floating in the ocean. And just like my, my brain would relax in that state, you know? And I remember one of those times too, I came back to New York, City for a few months and then went back to Costa Rica and I had decided um, that I, I was having this bad experience with the medication. I had put on like 60 pounds and was just feeling terrible and with my doctor's permission I decided to come off of medicine 
and I, I was able to taper off because I was floating in the ocean and sunning my buns in Costa Rica. Like I just had faith and nature access and this kind of slowing down that the culture itself, the land itself allowed for. The majority of the local people were living in that way in a little beach town. And for me, it just made sense. And for me, too, living by myself in these places, there's just kind of this understanding that, that at least in Thailand, I really feel it. Where it's like, okay, that wild blonde girl that we don't really know what to do with, we're just like, she has her bungalow, she's doing her thing. She comes out and eats food with us sometimes and, like, you know, makes silly jokes and wiggles her butt and then she goes, you know, like, they just, I'm allowed my personal space and no one asks questions and I love that it's such a blessing I feel like so much anxiety for me is just naturally relieved because I don't have I'm just left alone which sometimes I've really needed you know a lot of times too just to kind of hop back into our, our, our previous thread about spiritual community or community it's wonderful and it's great and there are personality types wherein convening with community on the reg or even on a daily level makes sense. But I think, too, something that I really desire to reclaim, something that I am very openly sharing and I'm kind of bucking against, honestly, because I see this happening a little too often that I'm comfortable with, is that community is fun. We must community, 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 community. I need this time alone and to be left alone because I'm processing a lot of really big stuff. And a nine to five, she would also infringe upon my processes of, of healing. And I think that too is like a conversation too that's particular to artists. I'm an artist. I very much freeform a lot of my life. A lot of my life has to be freeform because what if at 3 a.m. I just want to get up and and make a beaded insulation on their wall. Like, I follow that, you know? And it's very America to have the nine to five, to have the structure, to be in community all the time. And I need the opposite. So I call it like, I have my inner circle that I call on, which for me feels different than community. And it's just a feeling. It's not right or wrong for anyone else. It's just my feeling. And I need a lot of alone time as a highly sensitive kind of empathetic artist type you know so that for me it's kind of like this choice but also who I innately am is like I need the lone wolf time so stop saying silly mean things about people needing and wanting their privacy and their space and being anti-community like for me it's been an absolute necessity to my survival to proclaim my space to proclaim my space outside of an American system that makes me very, very mad the majority of the time. You know? There yeah. are things that are lovely, like my free health care, you know? But it's like I'm willing to kind of take that hit for a few months now and again and pay out of pocket or figure out who can help me to get medicine for a month because it's so much better for my health to float for three hours a day if that's what I need. And there was nobody in my life at any point in time who was encouraging me to do that, you know? In, in, in fact, floating for three hours a day so that I'm an okay human being, so that I'm okay, is considered lazy by American standards. And that is devastating to someone's heart 
who believes, I believe, I feel it in my bones to reuse that beautiful terminology that you shared earlier in our talk. I feel it in my bones that what I am doing for myself and for others, like just being a model for this strange life from, for as many hits as I've taken, as many criticisms that come my way, as many judgments I've received, I believe in what I'm doing. Again, it's that like innate, fiery, weird sweetheart aisle girl, like I believe it. And I think that we need to be having, oh, bless you little Nikki, Miss Sneezy. We need to be talking about this all and just like, not criticizing the most tender people who are making new examples of what recovery looks like, you know, or what the artist life looks like, because that too, you know, artists too, I think, are our marginalized people, frankly. And that's a bummer that we are changing. It's, it's in the works. <laughs> yeah, I think community does include knowing when when people need space. And I think that, oh. like... I hear you saying it's it's knowing when to show up and when to give support and sometimes that support is letting people be mm. and it's also the the busyness I know in the places that I have traveled nowhere prides themselves on being busy like we do in our country and part of that is a huge distraction to our healing most people are walking around with some form of trauma. Um, most people, some form of trauma from childhood. And it doesn't lend well to be able to look at that when we are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And then, um, you know, driving for Lyft and Uber after that. And then having to follow things on television and, and raise our kids and... It's just, it's just like this huge distraction to yeah. never really getting to do this work. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, the thing about artists is they, routine is not the same because you, so you, ex <laughs> you express something, right? You express something and then you're like, okay, I did that. Now I'm ready to move on. For other people, routine is is really helpful, but you know, part of that routine could still be floating in the ocean. Right. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing that from you. <laughs> yeah. So if people want to follow your work, want to donate to your work, want to show up to one of your performances, um, which I highly, highly recommend to anyone, how can they follow you, Kelly? Thanks, Sierra. I'm, uh, I'm on Instagram, and that's the loveliest way to kind of know everything. Um, kellyshawwilman.blogspot.com is my art archive. I would just recommend like sticking with me through the Instagram because I do announce everything there, and I will announce there hopefully towards the end of this year, at least within the first chunk of 2020, a sleeker, lovelier artist website, a Patreon. Um, yeah, there's a major revamp going on right now mm -hmm. in, in that way. And my Instagram does have my PayPal handle as the LinkedIn bio. Um, you know, and I'm pretty shameless about it. I, I love the donations and the support. It's the way that I'm, I'm asking supportive of my time and my energy. So there's that too. 
Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for being here, for sharing your story and your artistic recovery endeavor. It's it's almost like the inside out, follow the art, following the art, and then discovering about the, the process. Um, it's beautiful that recovery is so different for everyone. I appreciate you sharing your story that I, I know will resonate with our listeners. Thank you for your art, for, for being, for all the glitter. <laughs> I, um, I receive those compliments graciously. Want to learn more about overcoming adversity and embracing the full expression of yourself? Visit speakwithsierra.com and book a complimentary introductory session with Sierra today.